God is still faithful even in difficult times, and I needed to be reminded of that, especially after the, the year that we've had. As we've moved through Christmas and the, the Advent season, most of us are certainly looking forward to a new and better year. But we understand that that doesn't happen simply because the ball drops. Anybody watch that? That was weird with nobody, <laughs> nobody really there. When the ball drops or the countdown hits zero or the calendar flips from, Janu- from December 2020 to January 2021, nothing necessarily becomes immediately different, does it? Not much has really changed in our environments. We're still wearing masks, right? We're still having to social distance. We're still having to be aware of what's going on. And we have this anticipation of something better coming, but we also have a fear of it's not going to be different, that it's going to stay the same, and when is this going to change? And we are thankful for the vaccines that are, are, are here. Uh, I think there's two of them that are being distributed now, and there's two more, I think, that are close to being um, distributed. And so we have that to look forward to, maybe, and then hopefully we can get back to normal. But I think even our old normal can't be the way it really was ever again, can it? It's probably never going to be the same after what we've endured this year. On the other hand, we can't really remain the same as we were after a year like we've experienced, can we? It's changed us. It's made us different. It's had an impact on us, not only physically worrying about our health and and our physical well-being, but also mentally it's affected us, emotionally and certainly spiritually. And we look at the world differently than we did before, maybe not as trusting. Uh, We look at our health, our country, and even our future. There's a lot of uncertainty in there that we think about going forward. And as we navigate through this new year and our new normal, whatever that might become, I want us to consider this morning, how do we look at God's Word, the Bible, and how do we look at Jesus? Specifically, what He taught about this kingdom of God that He came to establish while here on earth. We know that John the Baptist was born before Jesus, and he said, you know, the the kingdom of God is coming. And then when Jesus came to be baptized, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And he's ushering in this thing called God's kingdom. Well, what is that? So I want to challenge us as we move forward. Sometimes I think we lose sight of God's kingdom because we are focused on our kingdom and the way we think things should go. Jesus spoke very clearly about establishing God's kingdom. He taught about what that kingdom looked like. Sometimes he used stories or parables to say the kingdom of God is like. And a lot of those stories we like, and we say that's a great story, but others we scratch our head going, what is he talking about? And sometimes Jesus even used miracles or healings to show signs of God's kingdom in his ministry. And as as I've read the Gospels over and over again in my lifetime, as I know lots of you have, as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see the differences and the similarities, and we read about Jesus, something always pops up every year, even during Christmas, isn't it? You know, you read the same story, and you go, yeah, I've heard all this before. 
But every year it seems like I go, you know what, I never thought of it like that before. Somebody says something. Somebody sends me a card. I read in an Advent devotional or I hear a sermon or a song and I go, I never thought about that. Somebody brings something forth from that Christmas story, that first Christmas that makes me think about Jesus in a different way and his kingdom in a different way. And as I think about Jesus ushering in this kingdom of God that he described, when he talked about it, you know what? It was really offensive to a lot of people. They didn't like what they were hearing about this kingdom of God. Especially to those who were supposed to be the closest people to God and those who seemed to know the most and were most in tune and had the most extensive knowledge of God's word. They seemed to be the ones that were most easily offended when Jesus talked about this kingdom. And Jesus' teaching, his stories, and his actions consistently brought offense and skepticism from the religious leaders of the day. And even Jesus' disciples and those who frequently would come and hear Jesus teach were many times confused, and they were many times disturbed by what Jesus said or even what he did sometimes. And this left many unclear about this kingdom of God that Jesus was describing and sharing. And part of the offense, the lack of clarity and the confusion that people had was because they had, many of them in that first century had this preconceived notion, and I would say as we do in the 21st century, a preconceived notion, an expectation of what God's kingdom should look like. It should look like the way I think things should be, with people that look like me, that act like me, that think like me as part of that kingdom, and those who are not shouldn't be a part of that kingdom. And Jesus avoided talking about a military or a political kingdom. And that's what a lot of the Jewish people wanted. They wanted a king, again, like David, like Solomon. But Jesus in his teaching and his parables and actions consistently stood that whole concept of this straight arm, right-handed power on its head. And people were going, what? And Jesus avoided publicity and attention, didn't he? Especially early in his ministry. When he did get it, he tried to downplay it. And oftentimes he tried to get away as quickly as possible when he started gaining some popularity. He would get in a boat and travel across uh, the, the, the sea or the lake to get away from the crowds. And he often told people when he healed them, don't tell anybody. But of course they went and told everybody. But why was Jesus doing that? And I think maybe, too, we have been offended at Jesus. We would have been offended at Jesus in that first century. We would have been saying, if you are the Messiah, we see you have power, you can do these things, then why all this foot dragging? Why all this kicking the can down the road and avoidance of what needs to be done and needs to be done now to put Israel back on top again? What are you waiting for, Jesus? Something needs to be done, and it needs to be done now. But as we read the gospel accounts of Jesus in our 21st century, some of us get offended. We get frustrated with Jesus that he doesn't do something to clean up this mess in this world. Why doesn't he act more specifically? Surely he has the power and he has the power to do it quickly. So what is he waiting on? Why continue to let the bad guys get away with what they're doing or to win? What are you waiting on, Jesus? But the problem is that many of us, like those in the first century, we we really don't understand God's kingdom. 
that Jesus came to establish. 2,000 years plus of history since Jesus establishing that kingdom has showed all of us what wrong-headed thinking has been said and committed by those who said they were doing something in the name of God or in, in reference to God's kingdom that Jesus would never have done or said. But on the other hand, God's kingdom has flourished and survived and continues strongly and survived all of that, continues to be this powerful force in the world. It continues to be this mysterious force in the world, but an actual reality that is happening in our world. As Mike talked about Papua New Guinea and Martha Wade, and I think 40 years of going to the jungle, and she has literally been able to translate the Bible for people in a third world country that can hear about who Jesus is. That's the power of the kingdom of God in an actual way. But it's also going on in an antagonistic world, isn't it? That requires a response to every person to this kingdom of God. Oh, I'll take it or leave it. Jesus didn't present the kingdom of God as something we take or leave. We're supposed to take it. And so when we want to kind of say, oh, well, I'll, I'll get to that later in my life. He's saying, no, the kingdom of God is here now. And we either humbly follow Jesus and his kingdom or we reject him and God's kingdom for another kingdom that we've set up, that we want to establish. Now, we don't read much about Jesus from birth to age 30, do we? Is all of a sudden he's born in Luke and Matthew and we hear some of this. Mark just starts off right as Jesus is a grown man and John starts off a little differently. But Jesus was born and then all of a sudden, the only thing we hear is in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel about Jesus at age 12 and he was traveling with his parents to Jerusalem to go to the Passover feast. And you remember they lost Jesus and all that that went on. And then all of a sudden from 12 to 30, we don't hear anything about Jesus. I mean, have you ever wondered what, what was Jesus like as a teenager? What was Jesus like as a young adult till he got to 30? What was going on during all that time? It's a good question. I and mean, in my way of thinking, he should have started earlier, don't you think? I mean, goodness gracious, at 12, he was in the temple talking with these Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were going, who is this 12-year-old that knows all this? How does he know the scriptures like this? So why didn't you start earlier, Jesus? Why did you wait till 30? But God had a reason for that. God has always had a reason for his patience and his timing. There was a reason. God had a plan to bring his kingdom and his will to earth as it is in heaven. So I want to start a, a sermon series today in which we re rediscover Jesus maybe in this new year. Rediscover Jesus' teaching in his kingdom that God came to usher in. And go, well, I know about Jesus, Craig. I know about the, the teaching, but do we really? And I want us to kind of maybe come to a fresh look at how Jesus taught. So at age 30, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted and tested by the devil. So I'm going to read, there's an account in Matthew about this, there's an account in Mark, although Mark's is really, really short, it just kind of mentions he went out into the desert. And Luke also has an account that we're going to read this morning about Jesus Going out. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to that. It's going to be chapter 4 of Luke. I'm going to be in verses 4 through 13. If you have your personal devices, you can look on there. Also, it'll be on the screen. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This is again Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted 
by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I always thought that was funny. Really? After 40 days, he was hungry? (laughs) The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. Now, you may be familiar with this, and a lot of times your heading will read in your Bible, it'll say, The Temptation of Jesus. And there's been movies made about it and recreations of this narrative. But the Greek word here is not just temptation, it can also be used as testing. But either way, Jesus, as he's starting his ministry, as he's ushering in God's kingdom, he's going out into the desert alone for a long period of time, and obviously he's fasting as this time of preparation to prepare him for what God has for him in this ministry. And notice this is a period of 40 days, and 40 is a significant number in the Bible. We hear this a lot of times. There was 40 days of rain. You remember when uh, Noah built the ark. The the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus, when he resurrected, stayed on the earth 40 days. There's always been a a significance of that 40. And he's fasting during this time, which I always go, how does somebody fast for 40 days? I mean, we can't even make it to lunch before we're hangry and and griping about, is he going to hurry up and finish? We've got to go to lunch. But I would imagine Jesus was weak physically without eating for this time. It's done something to him physically and emotionally. And this is where the devil comes in. He comes in at a time when Jesus is weak. And that's when he comes after us, y'all, when we're weak. That's when he comes after us. A time of weakness and he starts to speak to Jesus. If you are the son of God, he says, tell this stone to become bread. And the devil questions Jesus' identity from the beginning. If you are the Messiah, the Son of God, he knows who he is. But he's questioning Jesus in a weak state, questioning his own identity, giving him this way to prove it. I want you to prove it through supernatural means. It's not enough that you say you are the Messiah. I want to know through a supernatural means. Use your power, Jesus, to get what you want or you need. Surely you're hungry. If you're hungry, God's given you power. Why don't you turn these stones into bread and go ahead and fulfill your hunger right now. But Jesus seems to see through this shortcut, and that's what Satan wants us to do, to shortcut things, to not wait on God's timing. This is a shortcut that the devil tells him to take. And Jesus quotes, man shall not live by bread alone. I'm very aware that I need bread to live physically, but I've been fasting specifically because I'm trying to get closer to God. And he quotes this from Deuteronomy 8 2 through 3. Now you may go, Deuteronomy, that's an Old Testament thing, right? Remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Genesis is the beginning, and then you have the Exodus when the people of Israel leave 
Egypt and, and start out on this journey of 40 years in the desert to ultimately take this promised land that God has promised that they would have possession of one day. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is telling them one last time, you've got to remember what God has done in and through your lives over these 40 years to prepare you to go take possession of this promised land. And and he's reiterating these things, the laws that God has said, and says, you've got to stay in relationship with God. He's been giving you food. He's been giving you bread, manna, all this time. He's provided that. But now he's going to give you a land. And guess what? You're going to provide your own bread. And guess what? Because you're doing it yourself, because you've become independent, you're going to forget about God. Don't do that. Don't forget about God. Listen to what he says to the people. This is uh, Jesus is quoting from this, but this is the passage he's quoting from. Remember, Moses is saying to them, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestor had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Bread will sustain you physically, but we are not just made as physical beings, are we? We're made up as, of emotional. We have a mental part of us, and we certainly have a spiritual part, and we need God to sustain us. Jesus knows from history, the history of his people, where they failed and where they succeeded, not only with Moses and these people. He knew eventually they would fail. But he also, think, I think about the first test of Adam and Eve. It was a test, wasn't it? And who was there? The devil was there, wasn't he? He was testing Adam and Eve. He was testing now Jesus. And the devil's trying to get Jesus, just like he did Adam and Eve, to question God, question his motives, question his plan, question God's intentions, and to make a decision apart from God's plan and God's kingdom. And the same is true today. God gets us in a weak state, doesn't he? And he tries to say, wait a minute, can God really be trusted? Can you trust him and his intentions? If he really loved you, he wouldn't let this happen. He wouldn't let that person do this to you. He wouldn't let this financial burden, this physical ailment happen to you. And we start to question God. And the devil wants us to question all of that, God's goodness, his wisdom, and the timing of his plan so that we will take a shortcut and do it our way and reject God's plan. But Jesus doesn't fall for this. He knows exactly where Satan's going. He knows the consequences from history in the Garden of Eden. What happened to Adam and Eve when they decided to go off God's plan? There was a separation. There was a relational, spiritual separation from God. What happened to Moses? He didn't get to go to the promised land. There was this separation in relationship. Remember King Saul. He was supposed to be the leader of the people and he decided to take shortcuts and do it his own way. Remember even King David, a man after God's own heart, decided I'm going to do it my way apart from God's plan. And when acting independently of God and the Father, there's this failure and this separation, this spiritual separation that takes place. And Jesus knows this. And this is God's kingdom and God's plan. And Jesus says, no, Satan, I will only do what God directs me to do. Not you trying to force me and manipulate me into doing something God never intended me to do. So next we read about the devil leading Jesus up into a mountain somewhere and saying, look at all the kingdoms of the world. He tells Jesus, I have the authority. I have the splendor and the authority because it has been given to me. And this is true. Now, I don't understand that. 
I don't understand why God has given Satan certain power in this world, but you know what? He has. And it's real, and he does have power. He doesn't have ultimate power and authority, but God has given him some authority in this world. And he tells Jesus, I will give all of this to you if you'll just worship me, and then it will all be yours. Again, take a shortcut, Jesus. Veer off the plan. Don't do what Jesus, what God's asking you to do. You're going to have to suffer and die on a cross. Why wait for who knows how long to experience that authority and splendor? You can have it now. Why go through all the next three years of rejection, having your own followers, the own, your own disciples who at the last minute when you get arrested, they're going to all fail you. They're going to all deny you and run off. And then you're going to die on a cross alone. Why go through that, Jesus? I can give you power and authority now. None of that is necessary if you'll just worship me right now. The devil has no intention of giving this to Jesus. And Jesus knows this because Jesus already has all this authority and power. But it's only given to Satan for a a short period of time. And he knows this, but if he can get Jesus to reject God's plan in his state of weakness, and Jesus responds again with God's word, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And again, he's going back to Deuteronomy. Again, this special time when Moses is reiterating God's law to the people before they take possession of the promised land. And again, Moses is reminding them, serve God only. Because when you take this possession of this land, you've got to continue to serve God, not veer off of that. And then right after that, he says, do not follow the gods around you, of those people around you. And what happened, y'all, shortly after? The Israelites fell into that very thing, worshiping the gods around them. The cultures around them had these gods, and they were um, curious about them. And, well, if I, if I want to marry her, then I've got to kind of worship her God. If I marry him, I've got to worship his God. And, and it just turned into chaos and craziness that God had told them ahead of time. And Jesus will not fall for this. He remembers the history of what happened when Israel worshiped other gods to get what they wanted now, and it turned out as a disaster and a failure. And again, it led to relational and spiritual separation from God. Even in his weakness, he will not take a shortcut. He stayed focused on worshiping God, his Father, and serving him only. But the devil doesn't give up. He takes Jesus and tries again to take him away from this plan God has, this kingdom. And he tells Jesus, and he takes him to the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, which is this magnificent um, uh, temple that everyone knows. It's, it's, it's one of the, you know, the wonders of the world, and people know this, how long it took to be built. And he takes him to the very highest part of the temple, and he says, Again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And now... Satan quotes scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 91. It says, if you throw yourself down, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a a stone. So now Satan's quoting scripture. Oh, that's what you want, Jesus? I know scripture. But it's part of his deception because he really doesn't know scripture. He just knows it. He doesn't really understand and know what it's about. If you are the Son of God, you need a supernatural act in front of everyone, Jesus, to prove this. Surely if you jump, think about it. If you went and jumped down in front of everybody, they would all see that you are the Messiah. Why don't you do that? Surely the angels will save you. 
And this is likely the southwest part of the temple. If you've ever seen a model of the temple of Jerusalem in that time, it was magnificent. There was a really high, probably 140, 150 feet high at this point. And so religious announcements would be made at that very highest point. They'd come up there uh, uh, with a trumpet and they would blast the trumpet, letting everybody know in the region that Sabbath has started or that the Passover has started or any other of the religious festivals or if there was a special announcement. And when those horns went off, everybody knew it was the beginning of something big or an announcement of something big. So this is why Satan is bringing this. And there's always huge, large crowds gathered at the Sabbath or at these festivals like the Passover. So what better way to announce that you are the Messiah? Why are you going out into a desert? Go into the temple. Let everybody know, Jesus But Jesus knows his humble beginnings. He knows that that's not how God wanted him to announce his Messiahship. He knows he was born in a manger to a humble peasant girl and young man. His announcements was made by angels, but not at the temple court. It was made outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem, to shepherds watching their flocks. And then Jesus would move with his family to Nazareth to a place that was not so great, according to a lot of people. And he lived there in relative obscurity till he was 30 years old. Jesus knows that God has a plan. And Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is referring back again to something that happened in history. In this text, Moses was reminding the Israelites, and you all probably remember this, remember when they grumbled and they go, Oh, why did you take us out of Egypt? At least we had water and food there. We're all going to die, Moses. Why did you bring us out? Where is God? Doesn't he care about us? And Moses going, God, please, what are you going to do? These people are insane. They're driving me crazy. And finally, guys, all right, take your rod, go strike the rock and give them water. But God was not happy with that. You don't trust me. You don't really serve me. You just want me to do what you want when you want me to do it. I'm, I'm like a, you know, just right now, God. And he was frustrated. So this is what Jesus is referring to. And he says, do not put your God, Lord God to the test. Their lack of trust was obvious. And Jesus will not change the course of God's plan for his kingdom. He's not going to do what he asks. He will not put his father to the test for this spectacle at the temple so that everybody will know. They will know he is the Messiah in God's timing and in God's plan. And God will continue to reveal his plan and his purposes in Jesus in his timing. And God's timing is different than ours. And amazingly, in his weakened state, Jesus trusts fully in God's planning and is able to shed off these temptations from Satan. But was Jesus really in a weakened state? Well, of course he was, Greg. He hadn't eaten in 40 days, wouldn't you be? Yeah. But after communing with God for those 40 days, can you imagine the closeness that Jesus has with God? Alone with God, being full of the Holy Spirit, Matthew and Luke both tell us, being led by the Holy Spirit, connecting spiritually with God. God, remind me of what I'm here for. Remind me of my purpose in these 40 days. So for 40 days, he has been locked into what God wants him to do and remind him of all those things. This had to have given him faith. This had to have given him a renewed trust and confidence to take on even the deceptions of the devil himself. One commentator 
talks about how different this was from the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Listen to what he writes. Anyone who is the least bit familiar with the biblical storyline cannot help but think of Adam's temptation in the Garden when they read of our Lord's encounter with the devil. Jesus underwent a test that was similar to Adam's. And Paul talks about this in Romans 5 where he says, Adam, the first Adam failed, but the second Adam came to save us and restore us to God. But he says, Jesus underwent a test similar to Adam's, but it was actually far more difficult. Adam met Satan in paradise where life was easy. Jesus met Satan in the desert wilderness where the environment was hardly friendly. Adam enjoyed the company of his wife, Eve. Jesus was alone. Adam was well fed from the trees of Eden. Jesus was fasting. In short, Adam failed even though he had everything going for him. But Jesus succeeded, even though, humanly speaking, all the odds were stacked against him. Like Adam, Jesus was tempted to disbelieve God's word, to pit one part of it against another, to think that the Father was not telling him the whole story, the whole truth. Being fully confident of the Lord's truth, however, Jesus never gave in to Satan's lies. Well, what about us today? We're all going to experience a time of testing of temptation where God is going to see what is really in our hearts. And Satan's going to be right there trying to convince us that you can't trust God. That you can be God yourself. You don't need his plan. You don't need his kingdom. And when we see the world around us going where it seems to be going, how do we respond? Do we show the world by our response that we understand that God's kingdom is different and his timing is different? that it involves not straight-arm, right-handed power, that he immediately is enforced by political or military means. But it's a patient power. It's a humbling power. It's a testing, waiting, suffering power that comes along, not in our terms and on our terms, but only in our weakness, recognizing that we're completely dependent on God to bring about his kingdom. Not a military leader, not a president. I don't care what happens on Tuesday. It doesn't depend on America's not going to be saved by two people. Either however one, ones you like, it's not going to be saved. The world has been saved by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And he knew that because he was faithful to God's kingdom. And we too need to be aware that there is a kingdom that we need to know about and be a part of and follow. We need to be aware if we're going to be a part of God's kingdom, the devil will tempt you. He'll try to get you off track. He'll try to get you to take shortcuts and worship other gods. You go, we don't have those kind of gods. Yes, you do. There's a lot of gods, and a lot of it has to do with this little device right here. I can't even pull my phone out, but there's a lot of gods here. I'm not saying this is bad, but there's a lot of things that turn us away from God and his kingdom because we can't keep our focus off of this. And God wants to get our attention and he wants us to deliver us into his kingdom so that we can be a part of that. But we get sidetracked and we want something different to happen. But it starts with a trust in the face of everything that seems to be going wrong. Even when we look at our world and the things that are going on, we need to realize our greatest and weakest need is to trust God. Even in our, in our, we need to trust him even when we're at our weakest point. 
at our deepest needs, we have to trust God. No matter how much it seems to not be working, it doesn't seem to be the right timing. No matter how much we want Him to intervene right now, we need to trust Him even if He doesn't. I believe that God's been testing us in this country and in this world during 2020. I don't know why and how, but I really believe He has. And I go back to what I read at the very beginning from Deuteronomy when Jesus referred to this. He said, Moses said, and Jesus was referring to this, to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And I believe in 2020, God has been testing us and wanting to know what was in our hearts in the midst of all this that's happened in our world, whether or not we would keep his commands in spite of what's going on in our world. I don't know if I'm right or not. But I want to encourage all of us today that there is a kingdom that has been established and continues to work mysteriously and powerfully in this world. And I want to be a part of that. And I hope you want to be a part of that. But it only happens when we allow ourselves to commune with God in His Word and know His Word and know what His kingdom is all about. So this morning, we're going to continue God's kingdom work by taking communion together. We're getting ready to go into a time of that. And hopefully you have those little packets. And I'm going to also, Greg and the folks are going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song to prepare our hearts for that. But if you have a decision to make, as I'm talking about this kingdom of God, if it's something you want to be a part of, Jesus asks you to be a part of it. He died so that you could be a part of it. He rose again so that you could see that come to complete fruition one day. And if you need to make that decision, we want to offer that to you as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. If you have a decision, just walk forward. I'm going to ask you all to stand right now and let's sing together this song and think about what Jesus did for us.